0: Saved and sealed to be glorified. Salvation, as we've seen over the past weeks, is the work of God and not a result of anything in man. It is not due to man's merit, man's love, man's purpose, man's praise, man's glory. Salvation in its totality Encompasses the purpose, the will, the plan, the praise, and the glory of God. Our salvation is totally the work of God through Christ produced by the Holy Spirit. Every aspect of our salvation is completely and absolutely and irrevocably the work of God. God chose us in Ephesians. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He predestinated us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in verse 5. He redeemed us in verse 7. He paid the price through his blood. He bought us from the slave market of sin and, and bought us into, uh, uh, brought us into his holy presence. He forgave us our sins. In verse 9, God lavished upon us wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. In verse 10, God has given us His inheritance by predestinating us according to His purpose. We receive His inheritance such as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. We have eternal life. Of strength and much more. And much more will be revealed when Christ comes back again. This is why Paul begins verse 3 with the following. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Today, we'll look at verses 13 and 14. And infer the following truths. We are saved by hearing and believing the gospel, verse 13a. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, verses 13b and 14. Let us first look at the first truth. We are saved by hearing and believing the gospel. Verse 13 A reads in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, of your salvation and believed in him was sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. Paul begins with the phrase in him. Him refers to Christ, Christ is the ground of our source, our sphere, of our inheritance. In Christ we live, we breathe, and we have our being. Before coming to Christ, we were in the flesh. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but now in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So after coming to Christ, we are in Him. The next phrase... Reads, when you heard the word of truth. The word here is the Greek word akoua, meaning to hear with attention. The idea is to listen or pay attention to a person resulting in obedience. Jesus gives us some insight as to who will hear the gospel. John chapter 8, verse 47 reads, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Anyone who is not of God is not going to hear the word of God. So let's go back to Ephesians 1 and let's get back into verse 13. What is it that Paul says that we heard? And this is where we come to the next phrase, hearing the word of truth. The word of truth is a synonym for the gospel of salvation. And that's why Paul says there, hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. It's not just any truth, but the truth through which we receive our salvation. The listening or the hearing of the word of truth implies that the word of truth is being proclaimed, is being heralded, is being declared. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. I read, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear within someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are they, uh, are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we proclaim the gospel. This is why we declare the gospel. Because you and I cannot be a Christian unless you have heard the word of truth the gospel of salvation that will help you understand the true meaning of salvation. If you ask a person who was once godless and irreligious, but who all of a sudden takes on a fresh interest in religion and begins to attend church, such a person will say they want to change. Because? Well, because I do not like my past. Because? Because I'm tired of living a life, a messed up life. And you introduce such a person to the Bible, and such a person will read the Bible. You tell them to pray, he will even pray. But if this person's experience stops there, they haven't understood the word of truth or the gospel. It is only the clear understanding of the gospel that will help any person to be saved, to be truly regenerated, or be born again. They need to understand that they are sinners condemned under God's law. That they are under the wrath of a holy God. It is only the true gospel that will reveal to them that they need a savior. Why? To deliver them from the wrath of a holy God. It is only the true gospel that will help them understand that Jesus Christ is that Savior who bore the wrath of God upon the cross on their behalf. It is only the true gospel that will help them understand that their entire life depends upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the word of truth. This is the gospel of salvation. Have you shared this word of truth, this gospel of salvation, to anyone? Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached the gospel boldly. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 27. Acts in the New Testament, the fifth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 27. And 28 reads, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, How on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had, listen to this, folks, He had preached, declared, heralded, boldly in the name of Jesus. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue. And for three months he spoke boldly. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. May the Spirit of God give you boldness in Christ to proclaim the gospel clearly for His glory. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 19 and 20. He said, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. To do what, friends? To proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And he says, for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is writing to the Ephesians and saying, please, would you pray for me? So that when I open my mouth... I may declare the gospel, the mystery of the gospel boldly to the people around me. Is that your prayer? Is that your prayer every morning? That you would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. On a sidebar. The word of truth, the word of God, the gospel of our salvation is the only means God uses to speak to us. God does not speak to us through voices. God does not come to us in the form of an angel. God does not speak to us in dreams and visions. You you do not wake up one morning and, and say, I saw Jesus walk with me and talk with me in the garden. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 reads this very clearly. He says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, through His only Son. And and by the way, friends, if you keep reading and follow the thought of the the author into Hebrews chapter 4, he, he writes this clearly. He says, the sufficiency of the Word of God. He writes this in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. He says, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the art. So if you're following the argument of the, of the writer of the book of Hebrews, he is saying, listen, in these last days, he has spoken to us through God the Son, and now he, God the Son has spoken to us through the living word, the scriptures. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word of God. We need to know the Bible to know the mind of God. So the word of God is central in understanding the will of God. This word of truth or the gospel of our salvation is so powerful. So powerful that it produces its intended results. Where? In the heart of man. Jeremiah, chapter 23, 29 reads, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. It produces its intended effect. Colossians, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 reads, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, And of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before. Where? In the word of truth. The gospel. Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit. And increasing. As it does among you. Since the day you heard it. And understood the grace of God and truth. The word of truth produces fruit in the heart of man. It will not only bear fruit in the heart of man, but it will bear fruit increasingly. This is why we teach nothing but the word of God from this pulpit. You take this word of God away, it better not exist. The church better not exist. This is where we find anything and everything to do with life and godliness. This is why Acts chapter 6, verse 7 reads, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It is spreading. The proclamation of the gospel leads to growth within the church. Not adding on shenanigans and in whatever you want to do to grow the church, nothing grows the church. You want to grow the church? You want to fill those empty chairs? You want to add more chairs through the end of that gymnasium? There's only one way out, folks. You ought to share the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly. There's a lot of people out there in need of a Savior, lost and perishing, living without hope and joy. Go share the gospel. Bring them in. Bring them in. You don't need to steal them from other churches. That's not what you do for church growth. Go into the world and share the gospel. This is why Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, The word of truth or the gospel of our salvation, Paul the apostle says, Is the power of God. God. Unto salvation for everyone who believes. The next phrase, would you please come back with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The next phrase reads In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Believed in him. Here we come to the human responsibility. You've heard so far, God chooses, God elects, God is sovereign over our salvation. It is all of God. You may be wondering, okay, Pastor, it's all of God, so what are we to do? Do we just sit around waiting for God to hit us with a thunderbolt? No. The Bible tells us very clearly, we are told to receive the gospel, we are told to believe the gospel, this is our responsibility. Romans chapter 10, verses 10 reads, verse 10 reads, For with the heart one believes, and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses, and is saved. The Bible clearly teaches That God is sovereign over our salvation. He chooses us. He predestined us. From a divine perspective, it is God and God alone who saves. It is not 99% God and 1% man. Salvation is all of God. It is 100% all the way God from the beginning to the end, from the top to the bottom. But, from a human perspective, from man's perspective, the means God brings to br- uses to bring about salvation in our lives is the proclamation of the gospel that should result in our belief in the gospel. Our personal faith is the means the sovereign God uses to bring about our salvation, though even our personal faith is a gift from God. We know that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So we see all three aspects of our responsibility here in Ephesians 1.13. We see the responsibility to preach the gospel, our responsibility to hear the gospel with the intention to obey the gospel, and our responsibility to believe the gospel. All three are essential to salvation. All three. When I teach the biblical truth on predestination and election, I often hear people tell me one of the two things. One, they say, God is unfair. And I've dealt with that question last week. Please listen to the audio recording from last week. And we talked about Romans chapter 9. That's a place you can go to, to find an answer to that question. Is God unfair? Another thing that people say is, if it is God choosing, then we don't have to evangelize. No, my friend. That would be going against the strain of biblical Christianity. One writer says, Where confidence in the sovereign working of God was greatest, there was the greatest delight and zeal to participate in God's plan. And this is exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he says, I'm with you to the end of the age. So from a divine perspective, yes, we are chosen from before the foundation of the world. There's nothing you and I could do to initiate our salvation. But from man's perspective, we need to hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and trust in the gospel. God is the one who makes it possible for us to be saved. But having made it possible for us to act, God has called us to act. The word is preached and we hear it. Hearing the word is not enough. We must also believe the word. What does believe entail? Well, believing means we come to God recognizing that we are a sinner. Condemned under the law. Recognizing the holiness of God, realizing that one day we will have to stand before God in judgment. So having heard, we believe this. But as we believe this, this includes repenting from our old ways. Something that's indicative of true belief is a genuine change of heart, resulting in a transformed behavior. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. Meaning you have repented of your old ways, your old sinful ways, your pride, your lusts, your sinful passions, your arrogance, and you have turned to Christ, confessing that Christ alone is sufficient to save you. You don't believe today and repent tomorrow. That's not biblical belief. As if you become a Christian today and you have a period of time before you turn from your sins. No. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 is very clear. It says repentance and faith in God is what is required to come to God. And he says not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. By the way, repentance is not a work. It's not a work we do. And the Bible teaches that clearly, it's the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 reads, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret." Do you see that? Godly grief produces repentance leading to salvation. Not salvation leading to repentance. It is repentance leading to salvation. Repentance is essential to salvation. One cannot truly believe unless you repent. And one cannot truly repent unless he believes. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Verse 18. It says, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance. Are you reading along with me? Granting repentance, leading to what? Life. Not life leading to repentance. It is repentance leading to? speak to me life second peter would you please turn with me to second peter chapter 3 verse 9 it says the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty five. Second Timothy chapter two verse twenty five. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them. You see, repentance is a grace of God. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? It is not the knowledge of the truth leading you to repentance. It is repentance leading you to the knowledge of the truth. And who is the one who leads you to repentance? God is the one who is leading you into repentance. So belief and repentance go together. So we are saved by hearing the gospel. We are saved by believing the gospel. That's what we looked at verse 13a. Now let's go to the second point. The second point is that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. We find that in verse 13b and 14. Let me read that for you. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The moment you and I come to saving faith, you're sealed. By what? By the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul uses the word "sprigizo" for the term seal. It's a Greek word. There are four purposes of a seal. and Let me quickly take you to the four purposes and connect it to our Christian life. First, A seal is used to authenticate or confirm something as genuine. Like when you get a diploma, you get a seal on the diploma certifying that that diploma is genuine or authenticated. Thus, in a Christian life, the Holy Spirit authenticates a believer as genuine. Second, a seal marks an object as one's property, establishing the ownership of the property. So if there are merchants, they usually share one large place where they store all their goods. And all these merchants have these goods in this big storage unit. How do they recognize what belongs to whom? And so they have seal to recognize that it belongs to them. That is their property. In the same way, Christians are marked by a seal, or sealed by the Holy Spirit, indicating that we belong to Christ. Christ is our owner. Third, a seal is used to render something secure. When Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a seal was placed on the stone covering the tomb. The Romans wanted to make sure that the body of Jesus was secure. In the same way, believers are protected by the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of our security. Fourthly, a seal is used to complete a business transaction. In the same way, the seal of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer indicates that redemption has been secured. When Jesus Christ was on the cross and he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Price has been paid in full. It's a complete transaction. No one can undo what has been done. And that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, is saying. He says, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This means that when we become Christians, we are sealed once and for all. As one preacher said, God put his imprint upon you, letting you know that you belong to God. It cannot be undone. It affirms that we will not lose our salvation. This is important for us to understand. That no man, once a Christian, ever ceases to be a Christian. Well then, what about people who say, so and so was a Christian for 10 years and then lost it. If you ever lost it, then it wasn't salvation. It was a facade. You were thinking you were saved because you said a prayer or jumped into the pool, but you never had everlasting life to begin with. You may say, no, pastor, I was backsliding. Well, let me tell you, that is not a concept in the sense that the Bible uses. I mean, if you're a Christian, you call yourself a Christian. Listen to me. If you're a Christian and you call yourself a Christian, and you live for extended periods of time in perpetual state of willful rebellion, God will not spare you. And if you are doing that, you're not a backsliding believer, but rather a false Christian. Because if you are a genuine Christian and you are truly saved, and you live in sin and rebellion against God, the Bible states this very clearly in Hebrews chapter 12, that God your Father will discipline you. God will chastise you, and He will draw you back to repentance. You may, you may live in disobedience for a short period of time, but that will always be incurring God's discipline. So if you're, living a, if you're calling yourself a Christian and living a carnal life and not facing the discipline of the Lord, then we need to examine our faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says that very clearly. Examine yourselves. See if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's a good thing for us to do that. To pass the litmus test. Of Christianity, to, to look yourselves in the mirror of God's Word and see if you're truly a believer. And if you're truly a believer, this will only give you assurance of salvation. No person, no pastor can give you assurance of salvation. No person, no pastor can take away the assurance of your salvation. Your assurance of salvation is found as you study God's Word, the Holy Spirit will tell you, will prove to you, will convict you, will comfort you, will let you know that you're truly a believer and a child of God. Because if you're a Christian, you are eternally safe. The Bible teaches these truths. Would you please turn with me to John chapter 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John Chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me as eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to what? Life you have passed from death to life. So if you're a believer, you have passed from death to life. Would you please turn with me to John chapter 10, verses 27 and 29. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, And they will follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never, speak to me, they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you are saved and God saves you, doesn't make a mistake. You are eternally secure in his hands. Let's come back to Ephesians chapter 1. Verse thirteen. Ephesians one thirteen goes on to read that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Would you please turn with me to John chapter fourteen? Help me walk you through these fundamental questions as always. Good to go back to the basics occasionally. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. And I'll explain to you who the Holy Spirit is. It says, and I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper. It's a Greek word, alos, not heteros. The difference between heteros and alos is this. If I say, I have a pair of glasses, would you give me a heteros glasses? You can give me a sunglass, you can give me a diving glass, underwater glass, whatever it is. It's heteros. But if I say, I have a glass, I have a pair of glass, give me an alos glass. That means you have to give me exactly the same glass that I'm wearing. Does that make sense? Here, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, I'll ask the Father and He'll give you alos. That means exactly the same helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, from the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here is the Holy Spirit. As Jesus was leaving this earth, the disciples were being given another comforter, a parakletos. That's a Greek word there. Literally meaning a helper, someone who is is going to come alongside them and comfort them in their time of need. This other comforter that John says in John chapter 14 is exactly the same as Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is not a fog like a smoke up in the air. At least when I was a Sunday school teacher talk to my kids about the Holy Spirit and oftentimes they come out with this notion that somehow the Holy Spirit is some kind of smoke out there. And they read the King James Bible and they read the Holy Ghost and they think it's some kind of a ghost out there. Friendly ghost. The Casper, the friendly ghost. Well, the Holy Spirit is not some mystical power. The Holy Spirit is a real person. Let me show you why I say that. Again, let's go back to the basics. Would you please, if you if you're not moved out from John chapter 16, uh, John 14, let's go to John 16 quickly, please. John 16, verse seven and eight. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send, what? Speak to me, what? I will send him, a pronoun. He didn't say, I will send it. That would make it some kind of a smoke, or a fog, or Casper, the friendly ghost. He says, I will send whom? Him, to you. And verse 8 goes on to say, and when he, again, he comes He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit is a person. And this Holy Spirit will be with you forever. Will dwell with you permanently. Once the Holy Spirit comes, He dwells with you. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. He is with you forever. How do we know if we have the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, you know you have the Holy Spirit because you have believed the gospel. Let me explain that to you. Would you please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is stating, the reason you were able to understand the gospel that was preached to you was because the Holy Spirit was at work in your life. You and I sitting here will not be able to understand the word of God unless the Holy Spirit is teaching you that. We know that because Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 says, But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were made alive. We were quickened by the Holy Spirit. You know the story of Acts 16 with Lydia's conversion. The apostle spoke the word of truth, and we are told that the women were converted. Why? Because she believed the truth. She was converted. But the passage reads goes on to read very clearly in verse 14. That Lydia heard the news, but the Lord opened her heart. As the word was preached by the apostles, the Holy Spirit opened the eyes or softened the heart of Lydia. So Lydia could understand the gospel. This is why when you share the gospel with others around you, you pray, Lord... Do your work of regeneration in that person's heart. So that the words you speak would be able to fall on soft hearts. And that the scales of their eyes would be f- taken away. And their s- hearts would be softened. That they would be able to understand and hear the gospel. Because it is the Holy Spirit who quickens. It is the Holy Spirit who makes you alive. It's the Holy Spirit who breathes into you. It's the Holy Spirit who takes a dead person and gives them life. Dead people do not respond to the truth. If you go into a hospital room and you see a dead body and you tell the dead body there on the table there's life-giving medicine the dead body is not going to get up and take that medicine. And if it does, run for your life. Dead people don't move. Dead people have no desire. The Bible says we are dead in our spiritual transgressions. We are dead. We do not have a desire for God. Unless the Spirit of God awakens us, breathes into us, and we are able to understand the truth of the gospel. If it were not for the Spirit of God, we would all be like dead fish floating on the river, Heading in the course of the river. Second, we know that we have the Holy Spirit because the Spirit produces His fruit in us. Yes. Not only does the Holy Spirit convict us, not only the Holy Spirit converts us, the Holy Spirit completes the work. We read in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, you all know this, Sunday school graduates, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. The Holy Spirit produces His fruit in our lives. I want you to turn with me to one passage, please, and read that along with me. Would you please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, behold the glory, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Do you see that? Are being transformed from one degree of glory to what? To another. For this comes from whom? From the Lord who is the, speak to me, it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing the work of transforming you, of taking you from one glory to another glory. I mean, you are being transformed each and every day. And so if you look at your life and you don't see any transformation, it's a good point to pause and ask yourself, how am I doing? You're looking for the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Philippians one six says, "I'm sure of this that if who began a good work in you will bring it to completion." So we talked about who the Holy Spirit is. We talked about how do we know if we have the Holy Spirit. Another question I want to deal with quickly is when did we get the Holy Spirit? When we get the Holy Spirit as soon as we get saved. There is no time lapse between believing in Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, that's when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. What does the Bible say? You were what? Sealed. Sealed. Not you will be. You were what? Sealed. With the promise, Holy Spirit. When the person believes in the gospel, he is sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise. We do not have to wait for a second blessing. Or a third blessing. Or a fourth blessing. Or a fifth blessing. You get the Holy Spirit the moment you believe. Now a person may not feel anything. He may not feel any goosebumps, no hair-raising experience, no cloud in the sky, no gold dust from the ceiling, no shivering of body, no babbling in tongues, no laughter like animals. The Holy Spirit is given instantly and immediately to you at your conversion as soon as you get saved. The Bible never tells you you need to get baptized in the Spirit. You get baptized the moment you get saved. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says. We were all baptized into that one body at salvation. We are never told that we have to be sealed in the Spirit because sealing is happening the point of salvation. You were sealed. You were marked that you belong to Him. The only thing that the Bible tells you to do, the only command the Bible tells you to do as far as salvation is would you please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It is, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to live continually under the influence of the Spirit of God. And how do you do that? You let the word of God control your lives. And we see that if you compare Colossians 3.16. It tells you how to be filled with the spirit. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. The more you allow the word of God to dominate your mind, the more you allow the word of God to dominate your life, the more you have the mind of Christ and the more you're filled with the Spirit. Does that make sense? That's what being filled with the Spirit is all about. Let's continue in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. Please come back to Ephesians 1.14. It continues to read that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 14 begins, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance? When you use the word guarantee, it's the word araban, the Greek word araban. It has two meanings. It can mean guarantee or like a down payment, an earnest money. It's like a token payment. When you go to buy a house, you put a token amount, a down, a down payment, saying that you're serious enough to make that deal. The second meaning of the word Araban, it means an engagement ring. That when you promise to marry your love of your life, you give her an engagement ring, a symbol of commitment. That's the second meaning of the word Araban. So when you put the two meanings together, it means that God the Father is giving us the Holy Spirit or a token or an earnest money of our future redemption. God the Father is saying, I am going to give this to you right now. It's a guarantee that I am completing the deal, that I will finish what I have started. Paul wraps up verse 14 with the purpose behind the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He says, It's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God desires to glorify Himself through you. This is the reason He chose you. This is the reason He predestinated you. This is the reason He adopted you. This is the reason He redeemed you. This is the reason He forgave you. This is the reason He lavished you with grace, wisdom, and insight. This is the reason He did all of this, all for the praise of His glory. And this is why Paul begins verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Folks, this should revolutionize your worship of God. We don't dichotomize worship. Salo led the worship. No, Salo led the singing. Now we are worshiping God through the word of God. And right after this, we'll worship God through the offertory. From the time you walk in from that door, right to the time you step out of the door, you are involved in corporate worship. Don't dichotomize worship. Knowing this should revolutionize your worship of God. As one pastor said, a towering transcendent vision of God will cause us to worship God and give him all glory. He said, I theology produces high doxology. High theology produces high doxology. May God give us the grace to live for the praise of His glorious grace. And may you find favor to do that. May, may God give you the grace to do that as you step outside the doors. That you say, Lord, help me to live for your glory, for your honor. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thankful for the ability you've given us, Lord, to to understand the word through the Holy Spirit illuminating us. We thank you for that. Help us to, Father, live for the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.